0: Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Amen. If you will, find in your copy of Scripture, 1 Timothy will be in chapter 2. We finished up chapter 1 last week, so we're going to begin in chapter 2. And it appears as if uh, Paul is making a transition here, so he's kind of giving us some insights into what Timothy's responsibility is going to be, which is oversight of the church, dealing with the false teachers. And then chapters two and three and the ongoing chapters, particularly two and three, kind of deal with what's going on in the church in the context of either worship or worship leadership. He's going to talk about church leaders in chapter three. Here in chapter two, primarily what he does is he moves us into this idea of what does it look like in a worship service or a congregational uh, gathering. And Let me say this. I'll try to repeat this in the subsequent sermons, especially some of the ones that we're going to read next week and the weeks after. They're either a controversial section of Scripture or a misunderstood section of Scripture at different times. And one of the things we got to keep our mind around is the reason that Paul gives specific instructions regarding what happens in worship, who leads worship, and those types of things is the problems that were going on in Ephesus were distracting from the gospel. The aim that Paul wants us to remember is that as a church, if there's anything that pushes us away from the gospel of Christ, distracts us, creates division, causes distortion, creates an issue where we're focused on the wrong thing, then if that happens, then that needs to be addressed and corrected. And that's part of what Paul wants us to remember. We ought to be a church that is focused on the gospel. In what we do in our services, in what we do in our ministries, in what we do in our groups, wherever we are, the gospel ought to be central, not issues and problems and divisions and frustrations. And so, with that said, Paul tells us what's supposed to happen in a worship service. Now, let's read what he says. First of all, so this this is first of all, this is of primary importance. Paul is saying, in the gathered group of believers, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Now, if we think about corporate worship... If I use the phrase worship or the word worship, a lot of times we automatically go to singing. And singing is a tremendously appropriate and absolutely vital part of congregational worship. Testified to in the Old Testament, testified to in the New Testament, where Paul says to teach one another, admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But in this context, in the church at Ephesus, Paul says... What I want you to begin with is prayer. I want you to begin with prayer. Too often in my own life, maybe even in the life of our church, prayer in a worship service is an afterthought. It's a transition. It's it's just a movement in the service. Listen, there are several affirmations that I think we ought to make from this text about who we ought to be as a church. The first one is simply this, we are to be a church that prays. If we're going to be a gospel-centered church, we have to be a church that prays. If we don't pray, we don't acknowledge our own inability to do what only God can do. I can't save, I can't redeem, I can't fix, I can't heal, I can't solve, and neither can any of you. Only God can do those things. And when we pray as a congregation in the gathered worship experience and in other opportunities of prayer, we acknowledge a sense of humility and a recognition that God is great and glorious. So Paul says, first of all, I want you to pray. If we're going to be a gospel-centered church, we are to be a church that prays. How do we pray? Paul gives some specific indications. I urge that supplications... In some of your translations, that will be entreaties. Basically, that's the type of prayer that's based on a specific instance of need. You know, when we have something that's in front of us, a health crisis, a financial crisis, a burden, a soul, someone that, that we know is an immediate need, we bring that before the Lord in supplication. And then he says... Prayers, that's a general term for prayer. It's only used in Scripture in reference as, a, as bringing something before God. So while supplication or intercession could mean a man going in front of another man or a man going in front of someone else or a woman going in front of someone else and making a request of that individual, the word prayers in this sense is only used in reference to someone going before God. So what Paul is indicating is that we ought to pray for specific needs, supplications. We ought to pray in any way to God because he's the only one that can intervene. We ought to pray with intercessions. That's where we bring a specific request to God on behalf of another person. In other words, that's where we come to God and think of what's going on in somebody else's life. What is their need? What is their crisis? What is their circumstance? What what does God need to do in that situation? And we bring that before the Lord in prayer. And then he says we're to do so with thanksgivings. And all of these prayers, by the way, are plural, meaning they're to be the regular pattern of the church when they pray on a consistent basis. We're to offer thanksgiving for what he has done. Why do we do that? Because if we don't thank God for what He's done, sometimes we'll forget that God is doing things in and around us. And we're going to get to that in a few moments as we continue to work through this worship service. There have been different times in the life of our church that you've commented to me about how a sermon was meaningful or a song was meaningful or something that took place in the life of the church was meaningful. I just want you to know where the credit for that should go a number of years ago, I, I, I was encouraged through a book I read to develop a prayer team in the church. And each week before I sit, before I, I preach my sermon, I send out an email to that group of people. And I list, tell them a little bit about what the sermon is, and I give them some ways to pray. And those folks regularly pray for me. They regularly pray for my preparation and delivery and for what God's going to do in the worship service. If God's moving, it's because His people are praying. Now, I love to preach. I I don't think that should surprise any of you uh, because sometimes I exceed the allotted amount of time that we have in our schedule for preaching. And some of you have wondered about my ability to preach as many times as I preach on Sundays. And I'll be honest with you, I like every minute that I get a chance to preach. It's part of what God has called me to do. And so if you were to ask me, Pastor Chris, what is your favorite hour in the life of the church, you might think it's a preaching hour. It's not. It's not even close. My favorite hour in the life of Wilkesboro Baptist Church is five o'clock on Wednesdays. Uh, We've begun gathering with several uh, friends of mine, several church members, several men gathered upstairs, and we just bow our knees and we pray before the Lord. We seek God's intervention in the life of our church, in the life of our community, in the life of the lost. Uh, this Consider this an invitation to any of you here in the room or any of you watching 5 o'clock room 253 upstairs. We meet and we pray. We don't share a lot. We don't teach. We don't do anything really other than get on our knees and pray to the God of heaven to intervene. If God is going to do things in our midst, it's not going to be because we are righteous, we're good, we're wise. It's because we are a church that prays. We're to be a church that prays. Let me give you a second affirmation that flows out of the text. We're to be a church that prays for our neighbors and the nations. In other words, our prayers are to extend beyond us, even in our um, known circumstances and situations. Look at how Paul describes this. He said, they're, they're to be made for all people, And he's not saying that we're to pray for every person on planet earth by name. He's not saying that. He's saying that we're to pray for all kinds of people. In other words, the world is to be the scope of our prayer life. Not just our immediate circumstances, but the world. He goes on to describe what that looks like for kings and all who are in high positions. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we're to pray for governing officials, we're to pray for missionaries, we're to pray for churches, pastors, we're to pray for people in our context, out of our context. We're to pray for our neighbors and the nations. We're to pray for those we know and those we don't really know. We're to intervene on their behalf, intercede on their behalf because God is the only one that can intervene. Kings and people in high positions, that means we're to pray for politicians We're to pray for the mayors of our local towns. We're to pray for our local government, our state government, our national government. And and some of you might be troubled by that admonition to pray for those. Because in the course of recent political history in our country, the options we've had, at least at the highest office of our land have been less than stellar. We haven't really longed for any of those candidates to be the ones that are in office. And it it troubles us. It burdens us. And yet Paul says we're to pray for them. I, I would remind you or I should remind you that the king in the case of Paul, when he wrote this to Timothy in Ephesus, would have been Emperor Nero who, by the way, in his wickedness, depravity, ungodliness, and unrighteousness makes any political leader in our country pale in comparison. And yet Paul said to pray for those who were in governing authority above us. Why? Why did he tell us to do that? Well, I think in one sense he's telling us to pray for their soul and their salvation. I think we ought to do that. I think if we're not going to pray for their salvation... Who else is going to pray for their salvation, right? That's our obligation as followers of Jesus. Pray that someone will tell them about Jesus and they'll respond. But I think there's another indication there. He says that we're to pray for this because we should lead a peaceful and a quiet life. Peaceful being with relation to outward disturbances. Quiet with relation to our inward sense of peace. Why? Because if our lives are disrupted, significantly disrupted... It's going to be hard for us to accomplish our mission. Uh, Let me just make a real quick illustration of that. God's blessed us the last couple of years in spite of COVID. And yet the interruption to all of our lives that happened in March of 2020 and onward has disrupted our church and many churches in effectively doing our mission in the typical ways that we told people about Jesus, invited people to hear about Jesus, given us other opportunities, online platforms and other things of that sort. But it's limited us in other ways, going on international mission trips, for example. Why are we to pray for this? Because, folks, the primary purpose that we exist for is to worship our Savior and to lead others to worship our Savior, And if our lives are disrupted and interrupted by bad governing officials or bad circumstances, it's going to disrupt our ability to be a church that is gospel centered and consistently preaching and teaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Now Paul told the church at Ephesus to pray about this. This ought to be a consistent pattern of their prayers only for that church and the churches in the next 250 years to suffer persecution that would then spread the gospel. So I don't know exactly what way God best is going to bring things upon us or allow us to go through things, but He's going to do those things so that we can consistently spread the good news of Jesus Christ. We're to pray that we'll lead peaceful and quiet lives so that we can share the gospel regularly. Why? So that we will be godly and dignified in every way. You want to know a quick limitation to being good evangelists in our church and community? Don't be godly and don't be dignified. Do you want to listen to an ungodly, disruptive person who claims to be a follower of Jesus? Well, how about ungodly or disruptive person, period? Let's not even qualify it, right? God wants us to act in a way. Why does he want us to care about the way that we're perceived around others and the way that we characterize ourselves? Because it's all about the gospel going to people who don't yet know Jesus Christ. Folks were to pray for those who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Why do we pray this way? Why do we pray this way regarding governing officials when we have a really hard time respecting the person that's sitting in the office? Warren Wearsby said that even if we struggle to pray for the person sitting in the office, we respect the office, so we pray for the person sitting in the office. That's one reminder. Another reason that we pray this way is because when we pray this way, it is a public declaration of the sovereignty of King Jesus. Do you get that? When we as a body gather in a worship service, and we bow our heads and we pray over all the circumstances in life, whether it's for an unreached people group, and, and that's one intention, one, one, one reason why we pray for an unreached people group at our church each week. We want us as a congregation to recognize the world's bigger and God is doing things in our world to bring people to faith in Jesus all across our world, and we want to be on the front end of that in prayer. And when we do that praying for our governing officials, what are we saying? We're saying that they're not the ones really in charge. We're reminding ourselves and reminding everyone else that there is a king, there is a sovereign, there is one who rules, and he doesn't sit in Washington or he doesn't sit in China. He's not a world leader that's going to come on the stage in the future as a human world leader. He is Jesus, and Jesus rules and reigns. And when we gather to pray this way, it is a public and a glorious affirmation of who we're really following and the one who can intervene. It's also a glorious reminder of our need to pray for souls. Paul is indicating that we need to pray for those everywhere. Why? So that they'll hear the gospel of Jesus and respond. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon of his, or rather in his book, The Soul Winner, he encouraged his church, he encouraged his his hearers to pray and pray for the lost. He put it this way. He said, one thing more, the soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer. You cannot bring souls to God if you do not go to God yourself. You must get your battle axe and your weapons of war from the armory of sacred communication with Christ. If you are much alone with Jesus, you will catch his spirit and be fired with the flame that burned in his breast and consumed with his life. You'll weep with the tears that fell upon Jerusalem when he saw it perishing. He continued, I'm always anxious lest any of you should take, easy, uh, take things easy in the matters of God's kingdom. Thinking about his own congregation, he said, There are some of you, and I bless you, and I bless God at the remembrance of you who are in season and out of season, in earnest for winning souls, and you are truly wise. But I fear there are others whose hands are slack, who are satisfied to let me preach, but do not themselves preach, who take these seats and occupy these pews and hope the cause goes well, but that is all they do. Folks, one of the reasons that we ought to pray for people everywhere, one of the reasons we ought to pray for our neighbors and the nations, is because God wants to save them. God wants to redeem them. That person that I asked you to think about, God wants them to become a follower of Jesus. And your prayers and my prayers are part of the means that God uses to bring conviction and to bring salvation and to bring opened eyes and to bring the gospel to those individuals. We ought to pray for our neighbors and the nations. So let me give you a third af- affirmation. We are to be a church that prays for our neighbors and the nations. Because this is really, really, really important. But really, really, really obvious. Because Jesus came to save our neighbors and the nations. The reason Paul says we're to bow in our congregational gatherings and pray for people everywhere is because Jesus came and died for people everywhere. Notice what Paul wrote. This is good. Praying like this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. It is something that pleases God. Folks, when we bow before Him and pray and beg God to save individuals and ask God to intervene in the world, God's pleased with that. It's what He wants us to do. Uh, There are not a whole lot of things in scripture that God says specifically, this pleases me. Now, there are some, but this is one of those. Folks, if you want God to be pleased with you, and if we want God to be pleased with us, and man, I want that for our church, and I want that for our life, guess what we need to do? In our gatherings, when we get together, worship services, prayer meetings, Five o'clock prayer meetings, Sunday school classes. We need to pray that God will save people all over the world. That pleases God. Why does it please God? Notice, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. See, God wants people to know Him. God does not delight in the destruction of sinners. Now, some have read into this text universalism, meaning that God will save everybody because Jesus died for everybody. And if you go on to read uh, Jesus Christ as a ransom, gave himself as a ransom for all, some take that into the specific all people he died to save so that all people will come to faith in Jesus in the sense that everybody somehow, someday will make it to heaven. Folks, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Paul is saying here. There's a difference between the desired will of God and the decreed will of God. The the desired will of God is that all would come to salvation. Let me illustrate it really quickly. Uh, The desired will of God is for you to be holy every moment of this day. But God doesn't decree that you're going to be holy every moment of this day. You participate in the choice... Of acting in holiness and in accord with God's desire for your life. Uh, the decreed will of God is found in the text as well. The decreed will of God is our memory verse. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Folks, the decreed will of God says there's only one way to get to salvation. There's only one way for your sins to be paid for. There's only one way for salvation to take place. It's not found in Buddha or Hinduism or Islam. It's not found in in contemporary expressions of religious pluralism where there are multiple pathways to God. It's not found in self-identity and the the religious perspectives of finding yourself in who you are and in your own identification and sexuality. None of those things bring us salvation. Salvation only comes through one. One mediator, that's Jesus Christ. That's the decreed will of God. The means of salvation, nothing in human history was going to stop Jesus from coming to earth, Jesus from dying on the cross, and Jesus from being raised from the dead, to stand as the go-between, the mediator between God and men. Nothing was going to stand in the way of that. That's the decreed will of God. The desired will of God is that all men everywhere would know that Jesus is the one who came to be their Savior. They came, who came to pay their Ransom, and what a beautiful word that is. That word ransom carries with it uh, a a full terminology. Two prepositions are used right around that word ransom, and it literally means a substitute ransom on behalf of all. The picture is this. Jesus didn't just come and pay a price, okay? He, He didn't just give money on our behalf to save us. The picture is that he came to be the price that he paid on behalf of us. In other words, he stepped in the way of our sinfulness, went to the cross, became our substitute, buying us, redeeming us so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be saved. And I want to tell you this. I'm so glad God did that for me. I'm so glad that Jesus came and died on the cross so that when I was 18 years old, I could put my faith and trust in Jesus alone and experience peace and salvation that has never left and he's never left me. I'm so glad he did that for you. I'm so glad Jesus came to be your savior and your redeemer and your ransom and your friend. I'm so glad that when you're going through difficulties and challenges, Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. But I want you to hear this. Jesus did not just come for you and for me. He came for people all over the world. Folks, it should tear us up on the inside that Jesus came and bled and died And there are 6,000 people groups across the face of planet earth that do not have access this moment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's something that should drive us to prayer. Yes, folks, when we gather to pray, we should pray for your ailments and your aches. We should pray for each other when we're in the hospital. We should pray for God to intervene and heal. There is no doubt about it. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. What ought to break our hearts is that there are millions and billions of people all across the world who do not yet know Christ. That ought to tear us up. That ought to get us to our knees and beg God to intervene. That ought to get us to our knees and beg God to send us to our neighbors in the nations. God works when we pray. I've told you before that I've got a prayer list of people that I pray for on a semi-regular basis for their salvation. Really cool thing is when we pray, God answers. God answers those prayers. He saves those we're praying for. I can prove it to you. I could take you to my journal that I keep on Evernote and take you to that list of people that I've been praying for and I could show you over the last two years the answers to those prayers. Those children that were on my list that came forward in November and they came forward in January and put their faith and trust in Jesus. The teenager that came forward, she was on my prayer list. And some of the adults that were on my prayer list, I could point out to you and show you God is working and answering the prayers of his people when we beg God to save those who are lost. I could tell you that some of those children that came to know Jesus, their dads are in discipleship groups. And their dads in those discipleship groups started praying for their children to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And one of the reasons that their children came to faith in Jesus is because their dads were begging God to intervene in the lives of their children. Every single person who we've baptized in the last several months, and really every single person we've ever baptized into salvation, somebody has been praying for their conversion. Somebody has been praying for their soul. I got to looking at that list that I still have. And I've got more than 55 names on that list. Children, teenagers, family members, friends, people connected to our church that have not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I hope that list keeps growing. I hope it keeps getting longer. And then I also hope it keeps getting shorter, right? I hope God begins to intervene in the lives of some of those that are lost. And we're going to continue praying until God brings them to salvation. That's what we ought to do. We're to pray for our neighbors and the nations because Jesus is the one who came to save our neighbors and the nations. How about this? What if? What if in our gatherings we continue to pray these prayers? What if when we gathered on Wednesday nights and we prayed in our doctrinal time, what if you joined us at 5 o'clock and you prayed for those who were lost? What if? What if? All our Sunday school classes decided to adopt a local mission partner, And pray for them regularly. You realize the work the Ebenezer Christian Children's Home does? Children who would never have heard the gospel will come to faith in Jesus through that organization because faithful Christians are providing a safe haven. They're doing God's work. What would happen if every Sunday school class prayed for a mission partner? What would happen if every Sunday school class adopted an unreached people group to pray for? You know how believe happens when we pray for things like that? I believe God works in miraculous and glorious ways to raise us up or raise others up to make sure that the gospel goes to those places. Because God sent Jesus to be the Savior of all men everywhere. He did, and He wants to save people. Let me give you a fourth affirmation. We're to be a church that prays because we're a church that preaches the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. Another part of what has to happen in worship services So we have to preach the gospel. Look at Paul's affirmation there in the latter part of the text. Who gave himself, Jesus says, verse 6, as a ransom for all, which is the testimony. What's the testimony? It's a verbal affirmation of who Jesus is. At the proper time, Jesus came at the right time to be the Savior of men so that, what? For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Evidently, some people didn't, didn't believe that Paul had a commission from God. To be the missionary to the Gentiles, a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and in truth. Here's what Paul is saying. Part of what's supposed to happen when we gather sort of to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. God uses means to bring people to salvation. But I want to tell you something really awesome. God doesn't just use the words that I say or the, the words of Scripture. He uses those words as we pray that God will use those words. Here's a, a really awesome thought. When we pray and God works through means, we get to be a part of the saving process. We get to be participators in God's work of redemption for people around the world. What better thing could we do? What better thing could we do than participate in the redemptive mission of God by praying? I know some folks that are watching at home, you're you're shut-ins and you've had a hard time coming back to church I just want to tell you something. If the only thing you can do is pray, it's the best thing you can do. There's absolutely nothing more important that you can do, nothing more important than we could do, than it would be that we bow our knees before the Lord and pray that God will intervene and pray that God will save. Let me make the invitation really, really clear before I read one more quote and close this out. If you're here today and you haven't yet trusted Jesus to be your Savior, or you've trusted Jesus and haven't been baptized, followed through in believer's baptism, I would invite you today to make that right. Get that right. Trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you want to know how, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'm available after the worship service. For those of you watching at home, let us know in the message thread. Shoot us a message at our email account, or the, 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 we've got a phone number that we can put on the screen. Let us know what's going on. We'd be happy to talk to you about faith in Jesus. Primarily, the invitation is for you as Christians. Twofold. In just a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. So now would be a good time to do some self-examination, preparation for that, and maybe some confession and prayer. But here's what I'm asking you to do. If you've got the name of that person that you know needs Jesus, when I give an invitation in a moment, would you make your way out of the seat, come to the altar, and pray for their soul? You can stay here a while. You can stay here for 15 seconds. But... Here's what I want us as a church to be known for. I want us as a church to be known as a church that prays. That prays that God will spread the glory of His gospel all over the world. That prays that God will use us to be the spreaders of the glory of the gospel. That prays for people who need salvation. Would you do that when we have a chance to to have this invitation? Would you pray for those that are on your mind that need Jesus? Church, I want you to hear from one of the great Puritan forefathers of our faith, Richard Baxter. And just let this sink in as we move into this time of invitation. Oh, if you have the hearts of Christians or men in you, let them yearn toward your poor, ignorant, ungodly neighbors. Alas, there's but a step betwixt them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting, ready to seize on them, And if they die unregenerate, they are lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? If you believe not the word of God and the danger of sinners, why are you Christians yourselves? If you do believe it, why do you not bestir yourself to the helping of others? Do you not care who is damned so you be saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves, for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. Thus, that live close to by them, or meet them in the streets, or labor with them, or travel with them, or sit and talk with them, and say nothing to them of their souls or the life to come. If their houses were on fire, you would run and help them. And will you not help them with their souls? that are almost at the fire of hell. Let us be a church that prays. Stand with me, if you will. As soon as they start singing, the altar will be open for you to pray, for you to do business with God, for you to come and receive salvation, if that's your need. Lord Jesus, we come to you in this moment, and we do beg that you would save those who are lost. Pray for Coach. I pray for family members and friends. I pray for the teenagers, the adults, the children that are still connected to our church that are here almost weekly, that have not yet professed faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for their salvation. I pray that you'd open their hearts. I pray that you'd open their eyes so that they may see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you convict them of their sins and bring them to a faith relationship with you. Heavenly Father, I ask for something for Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Help us be a church that prays, that seeks your face. When we gather in worship services, when we gather for prayer meetings, when we gather in any scenario or setting, let us be a church that prays, knowing that our power doesn't come from us, but it comes from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.